The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com and their algorithm will create a palate profile just for you. Get wine delivered directly to your door, perfectly customised to match your taste, for $20 off your first order, with free shipping on orders of four bottles or more. Go to clubw.com slash culture. And by Score Big. Did you know that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold? Score Big works directly with your favourite teams and artists to get those unsold seats at huge savings. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone and enter the promo code CULTURE. You'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. And by Ticktail, a social shopping marketplace. Go to ticktail.com slash culture, that's T-I-C-T-A-I-L dot com slash culture, to create your profile and to see a selection of your favorite products. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the worst man in the world edition. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2016. On today's show, the meddler is that rare thing, an indie darling that is actually a darling indie, a grief dramedy starring Rose Byrne and Susan Sarandon. It's written and directed by Lorene Scafaria. And then The Night Manager has made its way from England to AMC. The Brit Import Limited series is based on a novel by the master, John le Carre, and stars Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleston. And finally, can the freakish one-off known as Donald Trump be explained at least in part by the fact that he is a baby boomer? Joining me today is Slate's, what are you, Dan, culture editor? I am culture editor. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. And of course, uh, Slate contributor and host of the Double X uh, podcast, June Thomas. Hey, June. Hey, Steve. Steve, what guest is joining us for that exciting sounding Donald <laughs> Trump segment? <laughs> it's me. Yay. <laughs> it's true. Um, do we have any business before we jump in? What's our plus today? Our plus today is that Gabe Roth, Slate's plus editor is coming in to talk about his excellent piece making the argument that celebrity grief twitter that the process we go through when we all mourn famous people on twitter and facebook and other social media isn't is not something to be shamed for or embarrassed about or that is stupid or solipsistic but is in fact the ideal use of twitter and in fact uh the height of social media's usefulness and beauty all right excellent moving on the Meddler features the otherworldly pairing of Rose Byrne and Susan Sarandon, a mother and daughter dealing with the aftermath of one's husband and one's father. It's on the one hand a mommy satire played broadly by Sarandon. She's the comically meddling mother who, under the guise of helping, seems only to undermine her daughter's confidence and sense of autonomy. On the other hand, I think it's also a subtle portrait of a woman evading her own enormous grief. The movie is beautifully written and directed by Lauren Scafaria. Let's listen to a clip. I don't want her to hurt herself or anything. I mean, does she talk to you about that? I, I'm not saying that I want to know what she says. I'm just saying that if she talks to you about stuff, I hope she talks to you about that stuff and that you talk to her about that stuff and that you make sure she doesn't hurt herself or anything. And, uh, you know, maybe also tell her to stop smoking so much grass. I know she's in some stage of grief or something. What about you? What about me? How do you feel? Well, I feel she should find some other way to feel better besides marijuana. No. I mean, how do you feel since your husband died? Well, of course I feel sad. But I don't think I'm as stressed as Lori because I don't have to worry about my career or money. Because Joey, God bless him, he set me up for life. So I can do, I can do anything. I mean, like, when I go to an action movie, I get three tickets, one for me, one for Joe, one for my mother. And I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. Dan, let me start with you. I feel, maybe I'm wrong, that it's been a long time since we've done a lovely small movie on this show. We end up doing, I think, blockbusters or gourmet, you know, streaming TV. It's a bit of an endangered species. What did you make of this one? I think the... The analogy to gourmet streaming TV is an interesting one because this really felt, I think, in all the best ways, this movie, like a beautifully made TV show. And what a world we are in now that a that a, 
a movie that, you know, 10 years ago I would have thought of as a very traditional, particular indie dramedy of the type that many, many American directors do really well now feels like something I would have been delighted to binge in three 30-minute segments on Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's it's beautifully written. It's carefully written in a way that the best uh, indie dramas and comedies often are and have been. Um, and it has two really good actresses, and it gives them each interesting things to do, to interesting ways to play off each other that are different from the ways I've been used to seeing them on screen. Susan Sarandon gives uh, a very sparky and spiky and surprising and comic performance of the sort that I haven't seen from her in a long time. Um, and Rose Byrne gives uh, a very modulated and sad performance as a as her depressive daughter who's really a bit a bit at her wits end with both love and hatred of her mom and so to see this kind of a movie a movie that you know maybe at the peak of sundance time we would see five or six or seven of these a year and they certainly still exist in the cinema space but they're the kinds of things that now get totally overlooked in favor of prestige tv and the sort of the easy pleasures that that offers yeah, absolutely. I mean, June, what an astonishment that in the time that we've done this show, which is now approaching, I think, eight or nine years of some preposterous number like that, it has flipped completely. One's expectations when we started the show were that Sundance every year would give us a little mini bumper crop of super sensitive, small canvas films, and television was essentially a vulgar medium that occasionally outdid itself. And now it's just, it's flipped. I would love to hear what you thought of this movie and also what you think about the state of movies vis-a-vis TV. No, I think you're absolutely right. Very well put. It's, it's uh, you know, there was a time in my life when I would go to, you know, a couple of movies every weekend. Now I spend that time watching television and I don't feel guilty about that. I don't even think that I'm missing that much, especially for because watching television often now means watching that kind of movie because you can't see that kind of movie in theaters very much anymore anyway. Uh, so, yeah, the, everything is upside down. The world is crazy. <laughs> Except I would push back a little bit against mm. that okay. to say you can see that kind of movie in theaters, especially in New York. That kind of movie is still in theaters in New York. In fact, more movies are being released now than ever have before. There are more screening houses in New York than there ever have been, including very small ones in Brooklyn and and downtown that are showing these kinds of movies. But they don't get the kind of publicity and marketing in part because of the uh, metastatic expansion of the cinema release schedule, but also because there's so much more competition out there from that prestige TV there. Mm -hmm. I mean, as someone who spends much of the year sort of marking the movies that I wish I had time to see and then (laughs) consuming them all in one big glut in November and December when it's end of year list season, I know that there are no shortage of movies very much like this smart, low budget indie or indie ish dramas and comedies with good acting and good writing like solid B plus A minus movies, but they don't get the play that they used to. And they, and I agree with you, June, that it doesn't feel as urgent to see them as it, as it used to before. I think mostly because there is this other often great, often samey McSame Samerson thing on our screens at home that gives us sort of that same thrill and seems cheaper and doesn't require us to get out of our pajamas. Right, and Mm -hmm. you don't have to go on a particular schedule. But back to this particular movie, I loved it, but I wondered how Lorene Scafaria had accessed my uh, life. Because (laughs) everything (laughs) about the relationship between uh, Laurie, played by Rose Byrne, and Marnie, played by Susan Sarandon, is exactly like my relationship with my mother, except for the money and being in the same town. There is something just so perfect about the observation of how maddening someone can be out of kindness. That there's, Mm. you know, that that Marnie does undermine Laurie, but I believe without meaning to, without trying to, she doesn't listen to what Laurie says to her, which is not a kindness, you know. So if Laurie says, Mom, I'm working at home. Just because I'm at home, it doesn't mean you can just drop by. Would you drop by if I was at the office? No, you wouldn't. 
And, you know, you can say that a hundred times. And this is a conversation I have every day with my mother. But it's, you know, she's not being mean. It's really, really mm-hmm. hard to be able to yeah. respond in the same way, especially if, like Laurie, you are depressed. And just the way that feeling of, you know, I'm an adult. I'm a grown human being. I should be able to control my emotions. And yet my mom can make me yell and just mm-hmm. be a brat and a just a horrible person more reliably than any other human in the world. And I think this mm-hmm. movie captures that really quite well. Yeah, I agree. And I, and if it weren't balanced against that kindness that you identified, June, the movie itself might be overly broad or annoying in the way the mother's intended to be. It's not that at all. In addition to her sensitivity, the sensitivity of Sarandon's acting and the kindness of the character, I'd add that this there's this mini genre that's developing in my head of works that are semi-secretly about grief. So an obvious one might be Catcher in the Rye which is really about the loss of Holden Caulfield's brother, which he can't process. Uh, Richard Ford's Independence Day, which is about the loss of a child that destroyed a marriage and the grieving aftermath of that. I would even say Lolita and Pale Fire. I mean, Pale Fire, quite obviously, is about the loss of a baby. This really is about the loss of a, a husband and a father and how, how this mother and this daughter are dealing with it. And that's, to me, the principal reason why it's actually quite a, a moving film, because Sarandon's character just cannot face her grief face on. And that's why this unfortunate aspect of her personality is spilling over into her daughter's life and virtually ruining it in some respects. And I thought that that was just beautifully turned out, both in the performances and in the writing. And that's what makes her bearable, I think, for me as an audience member. I think there's a version of this movie you could have made that would be really sour and difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems as though... uh, that's the version we see when we visit the sitcom set or the the show set, the pilot set for um, Rose Byrne's show. Rose Byrne plays a a TV writer who's working on a show that is very clearly based on her relationship with her mother. And the little bits of that show we see, which are pretty funny and features like Harry Hamlin and other sort of B-list stars uh, playing those parts, we get the impression that that's sort of the boiled down maybe not great version of the story we could have seen. But the addition of that element of Sarandon's character, the thing that makes us realize almost immediately that this is about something else other than simply this relationship between the mother and the daughter. It's about both of them sort of coming to grips with uh, the loss of her husband, her father. That is what made me willing to buy into this difficult character uh, at first, and then made me grow to love her more as the movie went on. I think without that, it's it's a it really seemed like a real lesson in screenplay construction to me and story construction. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that was the additional element that made this movie work as opposed to not work. Yeah, and it's not manipulative either. And then we'd be remiss, June, if we didn't talk a little bit about Rose Byrne, who's emerging as a comic actress. She, uh, through no fault of her own, has inherited perfect genes that make her look like a China doll. She is not a China doll, not as an actress and not as a performer. She's gone in this new direction. She's done it quite successfully, in my estimation. Yeah, she, she puts in a beautiful performance in a very difficult role, especially in contrast with... Susan Sarandon in this film, who is so strong. You know, in a way, it reminded me of another uh, great small film uh, with an older actress. Uh, Susan Sarandon is not as old as Lily Tomlin, but Lily Tomlin's movie Grandma last year, um, which, you know, kind of a a movie that spends a lot of time in cars like this one uh, about, you know, generational relationships. And Rose Byrne gets the kind of the hard one of a depressed person who is is kind of struggling with how to show that she still loves her mother, but that she can't quite handle her in all of her uh, fullness. I'd like to double up on what you guys have both said about Rose Byrne. It's really hard to play small against big. Mm. It's really hard to underplay against someone who's comically overplaying. And the roles demand that. I don't think Susan Sarandon is hamming it up at all. She seems very much like many people I know, including June, my own mother. Um, (laughs) And Rose Byrne has a really tough task in this movie, which is to hold her scenes and hold her moments, even though her character, by choice, by disposition, and currently by chemical imbalance, is really low energy. And that's hard to do. And she really holds those scenes really well. You really feel for her in those moments and you really relate to her. And that's like a really great small performance of the type that 
that people don't notice and that many actors don't want to do because it feels boring, but it anchors this movie. I'd like and, to add uh, one more thing about this movie, Steve. Absolutely. Finally, finally, a movie has the guts to do what every movie should have done up till now, which is to make J.K. Simmons a lust object. <laughs> <laughs> he was serving He's very good in it. He He's was serving good. Major Sam Elliott in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> if his mustache had been a little bit bigger, it would have been straight up Sam Elliott. But he was he plays the love interest for Marnie for Susan Sarandon, a guy who's interested in her, who she's sort of finding her way towards getting interested in and he's a retired cop with a great motorcycle and chickens he's it's not a he's, motorcycle dan it's a harley davidson i'm sorry you're right <laughs> that's an elementary mistake that that marty also makes you know it's the kind of movie that at sundance 11 years ago everyone would have made a big fuss over and that ecosystem is not the same anymore but i am glad to see this movie out there and i hope that it does really well yeah, agree. Glad you flagged that performance and absolutely go find this movie. It's it's really basically a complete success. All right. It's called The Meddler. It has Rose Byrne and Susan Sarandon. Find it and discuss it with us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. June, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you this week by Club W. We've all been there. You come home after a long, exhausting day at work, in my case, in my home. And all you want to do is sip a glass of wine and relax and pretend that you're Olivia Pope in Scandal. <laughs> but unless you've planned ahead, you probably don't even have a bottle in your house. And getting up and going to the store is just not happening. But there is this revolutionary new service. It's a wine club that sends you directly to your door bottles of wine. And it saves you all those trips to the grocery store or the confusing and utterly humiliating, in my case, liquor slash wine store. Dan, have you ever had any of Club W's packages arrive at your home? We have. The wines we've gotten are really good. It's fun to like use their little uh, taste test thing on the site where it asks you different things about your palate. It's fun to sort of think about your taste, and then it's fun to see that reflected in the wine, especially for someone like me who doesn't know Jack about wine at all. Ditto. Mm. Right now, Club W is offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. And it gets even better. Club W will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to clubw.com slash culture to get $20 off your first order now. That's clubw.com slash culture. Back to you, Steve. All right, moving on. The Night Manager Began Its Life is a 1993 novel by the British novelist and I think absolute master of the spy genre, Jean Le Carre. It's now been adapted into a six-part miniseries by the BBC, or at least, June, you can correct me on this, it was broadcast on BBC One. Um, it's drifted over the pond to us, a former British soldier who's now a discreet employee at the upper reaches of the hotel business is drawn against his will into some seriously dark international intrigue centered around a businessman named Roper, appears to be peddling arms and doing various other nefarious things. He's played with Sinister Aplomb by Hugh Laurie, who's best known for House. Is that right, June? I would say so, or Jeeves, if you're British. Right, uh, exactly. And uh, and it also stars Tom Hiddleston as the, as the um, aforementioned uh, concierge type. Let's listen to a clip. It's a tricky one, you see. The chief is a stickler for details, so we called the Meisters Hotel to ask for a reference, and it turns out... You are nothing more than a common thief. 40,000 euros swiped from the safe, the police called, Herrmeister's positively seething. No wonder the chief has a few questions to ask. But he says they can wait until you're better. Although, I'm not so sure we're quite as poorly as we're making out. In fact, I'm not sure at all about you, Pine. I think you might be stringing us along. Hmm. And if that's the case, when you're better, I will hood you and hang you up by those lovely ankles until the truth falls out of you by gravity. Toodaloo. Mm, mm, mm. How's that for Sinister Aplomb? June, let me start with you. I bloody loved this, but is that because I'm a sucker for a British accent? 
I, you know, I don't know. I can't quite answer the second part of that question. I was not <laughs> quite as in love with it as you. I've only watched the two episodes that I've heard so far. I haven't, you know, done the TV critic thing and binge the whole lot. And I also may be a little spoiled because I recently read the novel. And there are some very smart things about the way that they've adapted it. They brought it closer to our current moment. They also kind of changed the casting. So they've updated it somewhat in a very smart way. I felt that although there are amazing actors in the clip that we heard, that was Tom Hollander, who has a relatively small role. He's one of Roper's henchmen. And he is an actor who has been the lead performer in multiple, certainly TV shows. So it's it's got a fantastic cast. Olivia Coleman, one of the great, great actresses of our day. And yet, for me, it was a little over-indicated. I felt like the director, Suzanne Beer, a Dane, who directed all six episodes, uh, David Farr, who wrote it. For me, they didn't quite trust in the viewers to make connections themselves. You know, there was a moment where, where Roper, he, he does something to someone who uh, Jonathan Pine, played by Tom Hiddleston, loves very much. And then when he comes back into uh, Jonathan Pine's life, we see this sort of ghostly flashback so that we, I guess, viewers are, are sort of helped to remember as if we would forget. And he keeps watching uh, sort of YouTube videos of Roper sort of saying dumb things as if that is what kind of enrages him. And for me, that was just a little kind of hacky, which I just kind of surprised me because it is a prestige production and and you know it's a very also a very expensive production for television beautiful scenery in in all kinds of places but i don't know i i was not as impressed as i kind of expected to be given the rapturous reviews of this production that came from britain where it aired first yeah that's interesting um over indicated is my new favorite critical term by the way um <laughs> it's the sort of the opposite of beautifully observed i suppose dan um what did you think? Overindicated or or handsome and subtle and thrilling? A bit on the nose. Uh, <laughs> I liked it a lot. I agree, June, that those that several of the individual moments and like the ones you mentioned uh, are a little much. That the music sometimes, that the score particularly, will sometimes ramp up the ominousness. Like every time that uh, Richard Roper shows up on screen all of a sudden the strings are like sawing away um <laughs> but all the same it's so beautiful and the sort of central question at its core is being played out so at such a nice measured pace that i find it i found it very enjoyable to sort of sit through and watch unfold you know, we know from the beginning because of the way the movie opens and because of the casting that it's going to be about the relationship between Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie, that particularly it's going to be Hiddleston hunting down Hugh Laurie in some way and insinuating himself into his life. But even that doesn't even happen till basically the end of the second hour. And I found that sort of measured pace really nice and nice to see. I also really, really liked Olivia Coleman, um, who plays the very pregnant head of a modest division of MI6 in charge of prosecuting the gun trade, it seems like, who is working well outside of the bounds of um, what her bosses believe she ought to be doing. I love that character, and I loved her a lot, and I don't really know her. Where should I know her from, June? Um, she's been in a lot of comedies. Uh, she was in 2012. Um, was she in Broadchurch? Yes, she was the lead in Broadchurch. Um, yeah. Everything she's in, she is magnificent in. And she is current. I mean, and it's there's a kind of cruelty to it in a way because she is often given the role of a plain woman who's being overlooked. And of course, she absolutely kills it because she's a magnificent person you know it, it 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 she projects just such goodness that is her i've never seen her as a, a baddie and i wonder if she could do that or if she has done that um but she's just magnificent and it's really i know it doesn't matter what's been changed from the book to the tv show because if you're watching the tv show it doesn't really matter but in the book her role uh, was played as it were by a man and the only reason that he was separate in a way 
uh, from the rest of the you know intelligence community was that he was a northerner. And in the TV show, they've made her a woman. So that's another separation and a northerner. And I'm not sure her Yorkshire accent is all that good. But uh, mm. We can't all be so discerning on the issue of <laughs> Yorkshire accents, June. The place that I just checked her IMDb page of the place I know her from is Hot Fuzz. She plays <laughs> one of the police officers in the small town on Hot Fuzz where she is great. I, I like it very much so far, even though I agree with June, some of the, um, and it sounds like Dan agrees too, some of the more over-indicated moments are a little silly and unnecessary. But, uh, you know, they're playing it to a broader audience. What's subtle about it, I think, is a, its best aspect. And that, to me, is, is Hiddleston. It really flows from the title of it, which is, um, you know, what is it now in this day and age of international money to be a good soldier in the old British way? It's to be someone working the night desk at a hotel and keeping everybody's secrets and keeping the proverbial trains running on time. It's actually to be... The MI6 agent's story parallels this, too. To be a good soldier in the British Empire as currently constructed around global capital is to be completely marginalized. And so I find the his performance and character riveting. This is a guy who's supposed to be invisible until called upon. When called upon to exhibit no personality and utter competence, and then to re- recede back into invisibility and watching his existence change because of these extraordinary circumstances, to me, is just an absolutely beautiful and pitch-perfect setup to a genre piece. Also, June, am I correct in this that, I mean, Lacare is in a class by himself, admittedly, but there isn't a lot like this in streaming gourmet TV? Uh, uh, am I wrong about that? Kind of super tightly constructed based on genre fiction? Well, this is the first Le Carré uh, adaptation in like 25 years. The first Le Carré TV ad- adaptation, you mean? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, I feel like his metier is betrayal and, and you know, that slow betrayal and slow yeah. realization mm-hmm. of betrayal. I think a, a show that is in a very similar vein or a similar mood is London Spy, which we talked about on the Culture Gabfest uh, a few months ago. Um so, but no, there isn't a lot. And I think uh, I saw that uh, at an interview, Hugh Laurie had said that, you know, the spy TV show or novel is about, you know, it's how we discuss honor and, uh, you know, betrayal and loyalty. That Those are the, you know, the big ideas that they wrestle with best. And those are great things to wrestle with. And it is a great way of connecting to the big events of our time. You know, the Arab Spring, which is where the show begins locating it in that specific event is genius and it really you know these are the stakes tv has a lot of problems with stakes but that really establishes why this matters it's not just that this is the worst man in the world mr roper it's that what he's doing is destabilizing you know the world that we live in yeah that was a smart choice you know i don't know how the novel opens but it's clear that if john le Carre was writing this book right now he would open it with Arab Spring. Like that is the specific event that he would have chosen uh, and that has the right geopolitical stakes and also the right sort of slightly exotic milieu to place this character in and to watch him navigate this world deftly but invisibly, as you you say, Steve. I will say that it hampers his invisibility a bit that he looks like Tom Hiddleston. (laughs) He is not that invisible. That has always been the problem has, with Tom Hiddleston. He has cheekbones, like sculpted planes of 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 mountaintop, like the Matterhorn that we see so often, uh, <laughs> float with clouds flowing by, and ice blue eyes, like the blue sea outside Mallorca. But uh, but aside from that, he's really great. <laughs> it's, I love it. He's a Matterhorn face <laughs> with uh, Mallorca eyes. Yeah. Um, well, it's called The Night Manager. It's a British import. It stars Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie. It's on AMC. Uh, you could, AMC has generously allowed you to catch up by streaming it on their website. Please do. Tell us what you think about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Uh, June, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gabfest is also supported this week by Scorbig. Steve, what's the next big event you want to go to? The next big event. A big concert. My oldest daughter's wedding. <laughs> um, oh boy, I'd love to go see uh, Taylor Swift with Jody Rosen. <laughs> well, whatever you know, I don't know if Tete is 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 touring this summer, but 
If she does, you can bet that someone is going to pay less for better seats. How? They use ScoreBig. ScoreBig works directly with your favorite sports teams and artists to get their unsold seats at unpublished prices. Only with ScoreBig can you name a ticket price and be guaranteed to pay below box office, up to 60% off. And here's what you do. Go to scorebig.com or download the new ScoreBig app for your iPhone and find the event and seats that you want. There are never any fees and shipping is always free. You can count on unbeatable prices and great seats. And when you're in those great seats, you actually enjoy the game or the show all the more. Next time you go see any game or show, go to Score Big first and see how much you can save. For the easiest way to save on tickets, download the new Score Big app for your iPhone. Enter promo code CULTURE at checkout and you'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. No iPhone? No problem. Get $20 off online too at scorebig.com. That's scorebig.com promo code CULTURE. All right, moving on. What if all the ways we've tried to explain Donald Trump, that he's a bully, that he represents all that is the worst about American politics, that he's an alien sent from space, Kang and Kodo style to overthrow all that is just and right, are way too complicated? What if there's a simpler way to think of Donald Trump, a way that combines his bellicosity, his cowardice, his incredible appeal to a particular swath of the downtrodden American populace, a populace that he just one year ago would have happily called a bunch of losers. In a Slate cover story this week, critic at large Stephen Metcalf asks, how can a person who has handed such a plushy life speak so naturally to working class resentments? His argument is simple. Donald Trump is a baby boomer. And so he is defined, as are pretty much all baby boomers, not by the cultural battles he won, but by the war that he didn't fight in at all. We are so pleased to be joined here on the Slate Culture Gab Fest by Stephen Metcalf. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Uh, now, I don't know if you listen to the show, but we are a just a roundtable <laughs> of cultural discussion. And so a discussion of Donald Trump might seem a little out of place, might seem better for our, our lesser sister show, the Politics Gab Fest. <laughs> but uh, in this case, we really wanted to bring you on because I think that this piece of yours, it's a wonderful piece, by the way. Um, you can read it on Slate.com. It really touches on the cultural and generational reference points that have made Donald Trump what he is and gives gave me as a reader and a only sometime thinker about politics a real different a totally different frame of reference to think about the rise of this campaign. Tell us where did this piece come from? I think the original assignment as I remember it was for you to think about Donald Trump in the context of the 80s cuz I don't know if listeners are aware of this but you have been working on a book about the 1980s forever. Yes, yeah, since the 1980s <laughs> it feels like um <laughs> the idea did originate as part of my book and one of the things i realized was that you know the the metaphor often used for the demographic bulge that is the baby boomers as they moved through time was a pig moving through a python so imagine a big snake swallowing a pig piglet or whatever and uh, and the pig is slowly being digested and moving through time and we associate the baby boomers and their demogra- that demographic bulge mostly with the 60s when they first came of age in late adolescence, early adulthood as college students, and they created the counterculture and the protest movement and proclaimed themselves a, a generation. I believe that that spirit carried through to the 1980s when that same demographic bulge hit its, I think you could call it their early peak earning years, and they began to take over some of the major institutions and glamour workplaces uh, in American life. And they reannounced themselves in ways that were quite similar to the template that they laid down at Berkeley and Columbia and uh, various other places as student protesters. The argument is emphatically not, and I say this in the piece, that the same baby boomers who protested in the 60s became yuppies in the 80s. That was a kind of cheap think piece that some people wrote because there were one or two very high profile examples in which that was the case. What I do think is that there was a structure to the public theater of the protest movement and the baby boomers first coming of age on college campuses in the 60s that repeated itself in the 1980s 
Donald Trump was going to be part of my book, I eventually excised him. This is long before he uh, ran for president this cycle and maybe even before he ran last cycle um, (laughs) because I thought he was too absurdly apropos. I mean, some people are so cartoonish and steroidal. As an example for one's argument, they're almost too perfect and too cartoony and you don't want to draw a cartoon. So I thought this is preposterous. I don't want Trump in this book. I'm going to talk about far more interesting uh, and subtly developed uh, human beings um, than Trump. And uh, lo and behold, he's become a commanding national figure. And I do think nobody is fully explicable in the terms of pop sociology, but some people are adequately uh, uh, explicable, and certainly some people as phenomena are adequately explicable in in pop sociological terms. So I drew out this argument uh, about him as a boomer. One of the things that I thought that I hadn't really thought about before, you mentioned this metaphor of the pig moving through the snake, is what happened when that pig hit the 70s, when the mm. that generation exploded into, the, into a job market after sort of, after making their way through almost a decade of kind of roadblocks that were set up that, A, helped them get out of Vietnam, things like graduate school and national service and the Peace Corps and things like that, and B, also served intentionally or unintentionally to keep them out of a job market that was not ready for those kinds of numbers. When they finally made their way through all those things, they got in the job market in the middle and late seventies, just how dire that situation was. And then the contrast between those people and Donald Trump who burst upon the seventies with a trust fund and a packet of real estate holdings sort of ready to roll. What effect then do you think that that had on him Mm -hmm. and, and how did that shot put him into the 80s and 90s and today. Right. So so backing up just a tiny bit, I mean, you have to imagine what the archetypal experiences of the boomers were in the 60s. They were on this super symbolic stage set that they then destroyed with arson and bombs. I mean, not all of them by any means, but a significant minority enacted this public theater of destruction and establishment rejection. And it was pregnant with meaning. It was extremely intimate. It was one fun marijuana saturated sleepover after another. And then starting in the late 60s and moving into the early 70s, they begin to graduate from college. And what greets them is uh, not only an economy beset by the oil embargoes and stagflation, which was terrible enough in and of itself, it's now beset by them. Because the essential fact about the baby boomers always stares us in the face. And we it's so obvious we forget it is they were a boom. They were a glut. Uh, and they were not only a glut, a birth glut. They were a glut of healthy, white, affluent, educated children. Not universally, not all of them, but when you look at them demographically, actually those facts about them were unique. There were, uh, the, the more educated the parents of the baby boomers, the more fertile they were. They were the first generation conceived for largely sentimental and, and powerfully non-economic reasons, for essentially domestic bourgeois reasons. The first generation to grow up in suburbia. They've had this by any historical reckoning, an incredibly coddled life. And they exit the super symbolic stage set into a massively glutted labor market. Additionally, women are entering the labor market in unprecedented numbers, glutting it even further. And so essentially what greets the baby boomers is unemployment. There's a select group of baby boomers. And what I find most interesting about this, this isn't really in the piece, is that a select group of baby boomers are supremely good at selling their services to their elders. And do you know what they're experts in? They're experts in the being yeah. a baby boomer yeah. and the baby boom itself. And, and how to and market what to they say group. to their, how to market to us. And this small minority gets uh, employed. And what I find looking at them as they emerge into the 80s and then there's suddenly a boom economy is they are extremely arrogant about having prevailed in this Hobbesian uh-huh. war of all against all in the glutted labor market. And so the funny thing about Trump is, unlike them, he actually had this massive leg up, never suffered from unemployment, and was handed what I think it can be fairly described as a massive trust fund and an empire. Trump suffers from the twin insecurities of the baby boomers, but with many orders of magnitude worse. He evaded the war. He was handed an awful lot in life. And then he sort of pretended to have prevailed in this Hobbesian war of all against all in the 1970s labor market when, in fact, he didn't have to compete in it fairly. And this has created this monstrously overcompensatory figure that's now running for president. 
Steve, I, I love the piece. If I was the kind of person, which let's admit I am, who made wrote down quotes in her commonplace books, it would be full of uh, lines from this piece. But I just want to push you about talking about a generation, uh, which you, you, you explain very well why what is different about a generation than a cohort, what, what it means to be part of a generation. But Donald Trump is so singular. I mean, he's the 1% of mm-hmm. the 1%. You know, he's white, he's socially connected, he's, you know, it was easy for him to evade service. But then also, not only those things, uh, not only his does he kind of typify the baby boomer generation in that way, but now... In his great wealth, he's married to someone who is not a boomer. Um, He spends so much time with his children who work for him. He has what is in many ways an atypical existence. I mean, he's much more atypical than he is typical. So how Mm -hmm. doesn't that make it hard to place him and have him represent a generation? June, I think that's a great question. And here's my answer. Let's see if you buy it. (laughs) What I discovered when I started studying the baby boomers, both in the 60s and in the 80s, was the less representative someone was demographically, socially, economically, what have you, the more likely, in fact, they were to proclaim themselves the oceanic voice of an entire generation. In fact, being unrepresentative and yet claiming that you speak on behalf of or represent the entire generation is one of the commanding signifiers of the baby boomers. It was absolutely true of the kids at Berkeley who became protest leaders, uh, principally people like Mario Savio, Mark Rudd, I believe, at Columbia, and especially Tom Hayden. They were all demographically unique. In fact, the most unique thing about them is that they'd passed through this multi-layered filtration system that got them into elite colleges on a meritocratic basis while leaving behind the very people who went and fought Vietnam on their behalf, the people who didn't have a student deferral. And I think partially out of that guilt, they tried to proclaim the generation a singular thing, a unity, when in fact it had been fragmented, certainly sliced to pieces by the deferral itself. So privilege demographic uniqueness, these have never stood in the way of someone standing forth as what we think of as an archetypal baby boomer. In fact, they seem to me to be the preconditions for it. So then how does this archetypal baby boomer or even beyond archetypal baby boomer, a guy who then went through the 80s as, as you said earlier, an almost cartoonish version of the, of the rapacious baby boomer capitalist that I think of when I think of the 1980s. How does that guy then, 30 years later, make himself the the voice of the outraged common man? How has that happened, and how how has he how has he enacted that transformation? Or was it a transformation at all? Was it simply Donald Trump seeing something else to grasp and grasping it? I don't think anything changed about Trump. I mean, Trump has sort of been this same preposterous self-drawn caricature that he's always been. I think what changed is the American electorate and that plurality that now nominates Republican candidates. So backing up a little bit, I mean, my argument has been this guy has been appeasing a set of excruciating and representative insecurities in public life, doing it quite publicly and quite theatrically for 30 years. That never stopped. Those insecurities and that talent for kind of weird talent for appeasing them in public has linked up with a yearning on the part of a subset of the electorate, namely white working class, undereducated males who are downwardly mobile and are looking for an explanation for it. And what I say about Trump, and I mean it quite sincerely, is that he's authentic. I mean, he's authentic in the way that Reagan is sincere. I don't believe that Reagan lied per se. I think Reagan believed that if he believed something, it were true. And if he could get an audience to believe it, then it was doubly true. And there was a kind of, you know, politically priceless sincerity to Reagan's mode of delivery. Similarly, Trump is authentic. And what I mean by that is that also with no reference to the truth, Trump determines the authenticity of what he says by how it taps into his own emotional repertoire and how that connects up to the emotional vibrancy of a crowd. I mean, that's clearly the basis of his candidacy is his live his viability as a live performer is very similar to George Wallace in that regard. His ability to conduct a rally is virtually peerless. And then you add to that his seemingly natural talent for appearing on television as a as a reality star, playing himself in a you know reality context. Yeah, the um, the, the part of the piece that I think illustrates that the best is 
is a section toward the end where you talk about these four bins in which everything that Donald Trump says can be placed. And each of them represents some specific aspect of his inner insecurity, but then the outward uh, exceptionalism that he presents to these audiences that he talks to, which tap directly into the myths they believe about themselves. The four bins you, you note are, I inherited nothing. I am a pure product of my own high aptitude. I am a warrior, and then you write, somewhat less obviously, though more consequentially, together at last, we will make a single generation. That is sort of the punchline of the piece, and it's the primal division in American life. And I say this as someone who did not set about at all to write about the boomers, to write about race, or to write about Vietnam. I did not think of these as, I mean, these are all you know, limitlessly rich categories for people writing about the 60s, 70s, or 80s. I didn't especially want to approach any of them. And they're everywhere. You cannot avoid them. And the primal division in American life is some people went and fought that war, and some people copped out on it, right? And the guilt on the part of the people who copped out on it, to my mind, there's a lot of evidence was actually quite intense and expressed itself in the campus protest movement and the self-formation of the baby boomers. But the flip side of that is the person who did fight. And you should think about who got closest to the worst combat as a kind of reverse meritocracy. We're talking about people who did poorly in school, did poorly on standardized tests, appeared antisocial in front of draft boards, and then uh, in when actually in the military were thought of as the least cognitively valuable or socially valuable or socially connected people in the army. And they were sent to do the very worst things to the extent that the people Donald Tr- Trump is talking to, the people that he is talking to feel a kind of social rage and dispossession. I firmly believe it originates in that primal division because American life has been screwing them over for 40 years. And it really started with Vietnam. The deep cynicism about American institutions on the part of the white working class began with Vietnam and the student deferral. And what's to me so singularly monstrous about the Trump campaign is that this guy purports to speak on their behalf when all he's done is reap the benefit of their dispossession for 40 years. The piece is totally fascinating. It's on Slate.com right now. It's called Donald Trump, Baby Boomer. It's by critic at large, Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming in to talk to us about it. I Thank you so much for having me on the show. I think I'm going to start to listen now. It seems yeah, great. <laughs> great. I think you'll like it. All right, back to you, Steve. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other, other sponsor, Dan Coyce. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gap Fest is also supported this week by Ticktail. You know, thanks to the internet. You can shop anywhere. You can shop at any store. You can find any clothes you want uh, with the click of a button, except that who has the time to do that? Who has the time to scroll through Google and figure out, like, what is the new brand that is perfect for you? Who's the fresh young designer who makes things that will look really good on me, a 41-year-old man? That's why there's Ticktail. Ticktail is a fun and easy way to discover emerging brands that can't be found anywhere else. Ticktail not only has beautiful clothing, accessories, and home decor, but each brand has a profile page so that you get to know the designers behind the products, the designers that Ticktail is going out and finding for you. You, the customer, can create a free profile to save items you like and follow your favorite stores, and you can even follow other Ticktail shoppers to get inspiration and discover new products from other tastemakers. Just go to ticktail.com culture and set up your own profile to start discovering independent brands around the world. That's ticktail.com slash culture. Back to you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. June Thomas, what do you have? I would like to endorse something from my, which I guess is from one of our competitors. But a few months ago, the New York Times started a new newsletter called Watching, in which Margaret Lyons uh, twice a week recommends TV shows, occasionally movies that you may find interesting. And she does it really, really well. I feel like I have a good sense of what's on television. And she has tipped me off to more than one show. I will mention just one, Death in Paradise. Uh, There are four seasons of this British show set in the Caribbean. And they are wonderful, mindless, and yet not at all insulting to the intelligence mysteries. And and they're weird. Cool. Like, that's the thing. They're quirky, weird recommendations. And sometimes I think, what? And then I watch it and I'm like, yeah, thanks. That sounds awesome. Um, Dan, what do you have? 
Uh, our love of the meddler made me think back a little bit to uh, the movies of that sort of Sundance peak era, the indie films that captured a little bit of attention at some film festival and then burst briefly on the scene and then faded away. And maybe we don't think about them that much anymore. But a movie that I think of as very much in the mode of a meddler is a movie from 2003 that I liked very much called Pieces of April. Mm-hmm. This is um, mm. written and directed by Peter Hedges. And it stars Patricia Clarkson as uh, the mom of a sort of ragtag band, a family band, who is suffering from cancer. And she and her family, her her husband played by Oliver Platt, um, and her kids played by a bunch of great actors, uh, Allison Pill, John Gallagher Jr., and Katie Holmes, go on this kind of road trip. And uh, I, you know, it's been 14 years since I've seen this movie, but I still remember it as being very funny, um, pretty touching, full of extremely good performances along the line of the meddler in a sort of similar mode uh, uh, as the meddler in that it's about a, a a big character. The mom is a big character, Patricia Clarkson, dealing with um, the sort of the depressives in her life. Um, and it also has a great set of songs. Uh, Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields did the songs for this movie and, and it in fact includes uh, on the soundtrack my favorite sleeper magnetic field song, the one no one knows, but which I actually believe to be their best song called All I Want to Know. It's just a very lovely movie and it's streaming everywhere and you should watch it. That sounds fantastic. God loves Stephen Merritt. All right. Well, um, June, what, how would you describe the reputation of Enid Blyton? <gasps> Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton. Beloved. Beloved. She is, when I was growing up, she was the writer of children's books in Britain. The Secret Seven, the famous five, the, the, the classics. Yes, the famous five. The, I, the, I, read this, I read this when I was a kid. I had a friend whose cousins were Brits. <laughs> And so those books made their way to me and I loved them. And then I later discovered that she was unfashionable for reasons of, I, I, don't, I actually don't specifically know the reasons, but I'm assuming she held uh, politically incorrect opinions about many things and it expressed them inappropriately. Interestingly enough, there's an essay on the internet about Enid Blyton called Enid Blyton Moral Guide. Uh, by a lecturer in philosophy at Cambridge, a young man named Nakul Krishna, who in his essays, he's now written a number of uh, essays that have appeared various uh, unexpected places on the web. He is a beautiful writer. I mean, really an extraordinary young essayist coming into his own. He explores his own identity. He's South Asian and was not born in England, and he uh, writes with sensitivity about his own status as a possible outsider, or someone perceived to be an outsider in England where he now lives. And he rehabilitates the books, not only as entertainments, but as, as, a, as he says, moral guides, as um, guides to the universe of the morals of a young and developing person. This guy is a supremely good writer, Dan Coyce. It is your duty as culture editor of Slate to fire off an email to him as soon as we get off of all of our um, broadband connections here. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. He's also written for the Point Mag. Anyway, check it out. It's called Enid Blyton Moral Guide. The unfashionable world of Blyton school stories still has much to say about what it means to live an ethical life. We'll post a link to it. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, June, uh, thank you as well. Always a pleasure. And Steve Metcalf, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lindsay Albrecht and Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply Network. Hail to the Chief. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas and uh, Dan Coyce, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you next week. Man walks in the room, girl, you